Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. This is Steve Kraus. Today on the podcast, we have Lane Shackleton, who is the head of product at Coda. It's coda.io, uh, which is a new future of programming type tool that I imagine many of you have uh, seen or heard about. It's um, a lot like Notion, if, if you've um, played with or, or seen Notion. Uh, it was announced that they raised money, uh, these two former YouTube um, executives, maybe around three years ago, and then we didn't hear much from them until earlier this year when they uh, came out of um, stealth mode or private beta and they, they launched more publicly. So now you can go on Coda.io and play around with the tool yourself. And like uh, Notion or Google Docs or Microsoft Word, the tool starts out as a, as a document, um, but then you can add in databases formulas, kind of like Excel, and even kind of script, scripty things um, to, based on triggers and, and result in actions you want to have happen. And um, as you'll hear later in this conversation, they have a really ambitious vision, much more ambitious than I would have thought um, based on playing around with the product. But, but you know, it's early days, and so that's, that's why we have these conversations, because uh, Lane um, detailed how they see this product is really blurring that line that, that a lot of us want to blur between. Uh, people who make software and people who use software. And um, they even one day see this product um, being useful for creating products, uh, not just as a, a tool internally for teams to use for documentation and managing processes uh, for, like internally for a team. They, they see that it could be something uh, for creating external products too. Um, but I don't want to uh, steal his, his interesting tidbits too much. Um, so I will uh, leave, leave the rest of the explanation of what Coda is now and, and what it might be soon in the future to, to Lane. Um, but before I do, I just have a quick uh, message from our sponsor. Replit is an online REPL for over 30 languages. It started out as a code playground, but now it scales up to a full development environment where you can do everything from deploying web servers to training ML models, all driven by the REPL. They're a small startup in San Francisco, but they reach millions of programmers, students, and teachers all over the world. They're looking for hackers interested in the future of coding and making software tools more accessible and enjoyable. So email jobs at repl.it if you're interested in learning more. Great, and uh, without any further ado, I bring you Lane Shackleton. Welcome, Lane. Hi, Steve. Hi, yeah, thanks for making the time. Glad to be here. So um, I would like to start with a bit of your background because most of the guests in this podcast, um, I think, are pretty technical and I think you come from more of a product background is that right yeah that's right um, I'm probably a bit unlike your some of the other guests um, I don't I don't have a long history of programming languages necessarily um, I guess my my background really quickly is I studied sciences and anthropology in school um, actually didn't start my career in tech started uh, as a mountain guide up in Alaska um, and back in 2000 truck 2005, drove my car uh, across the country uh, to Silicon Valley. Um, there were basically two two hot companies at that time, VMware and Google. Um, I started at Google in a, in a customer-facing role, um, and that was a, a, a really good introduction uh, to how to make kind of customers happy uh, and and learn how to balance really fast, um, you know, people's emotions with, with solutions to their problems. Uh, in a lot of cases, these were like business owners um, who are using Google tools to, to grow their businesses. Um, 
uh, and then later uh, kind of got to be a little bit more technical, built some internal tools for support teams, moved over to product, um, was really fortunate to be uh, part of uh, a lot of the early monetization efforts at YouTube, um, launch, launching things like skip buttons on ads on YouTube that eventually kind of went from zero customers to a whole bunch of customers and a whole bunch of revenue. Um, I guess overall my kind of journey to Coda though, uh, Shashir, who's the, the CEO here, um, uh, was starting this company after he left YouTube um, and kind of kept showing me demos. Uh, and I got really kind of enamored with the problem space, um, uh, mostly because I have a, a really, uh, I guess, a deep empathy for people with the experience of knowing, you know, what they want to build um, and, and not being able to make it with software. Um, I feel like I, I recall this very vividly from, from being in, inside of Google where you have really uh, amazing engineers um, and, and you know, I myself like had ideas on what I wanted to make, um, but sometimes was unable to make those things. Um, yeah, and since then have just been like really sort of enamored with the space um, and, and been since inspired by a bunch of um, pro stuff that's probably closer to home for your your listeners and you you know um, a lot of Brett Victor's work um, uh, recently we've been pretty inspired by uh, Nardi's work and her book Small Matter Programming um, uh, mm -hmm. also things like Clayton Christensen and Jobs Be Done framework um, so to me Coda Coda is sort of like this um, you know relating it to my background it's it's this way to kind of help help people who are smart and capable um, just the same way that I, I felt. Um, uh, so that's a, that's a little bit of my background. Happy to dig into any of that. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that this would be a, like a very meaningful um, product for you, given your background. Uh, particularly, I, I see the relevance of how your, your first role at um, Google working with like business owners, it, it, I feel like it, it definitely makes sense how this is kind of a similar power tool to help people with their businesses. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of those, those folks were, you know, small and medium sized businesses. Um, and uh, if you go look behind the scenes of many small and medium sized businesses, you see that there's a lot of tools that are kind of hacked together. Um, uh, and uh, you know the, the businesses often have to, to create their own tools because they can't buy really expensive software. So um, mm. there are a lot of parallels there. So um, I think now would be a good time to do like a quick two minute pitch for Coda, like uh, what it is and yeah, what the, what's the promise for it? Why would, why would people use it? Uh, yeah, um, it kind of depends on who you're talking to, but mm. I think we generally say um, it's it's a new type of document that combines the best of docs, spreadsheets, and applications, and that's that's maybe like the one-liner. Sure. Um, I guess and it. I'd ahead. be curious to go into like the different audiences. Uh, like m maybe you could pick two or three audiences and, and tell me how you tailor the pitch for each of them. That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think if I'm I'm talking to someone who doesn't know much about um, tech or software, um, I think. I, I often like to frame it sort of at like 50,000 feet. Um, you know, basically the world's been divided into people who can make software and the people who use software all day. Um, and, and basically we think that that paradigm is, is not a good one. It feels kind of broken because there are lots of, you know, smart and knowledgeable people out there who 
um, don't know how to write code and shouldn't have to to make tools uh, to, to solve their problems. Um, and so the, the sort of, you know, 50,000 foot, 30,000 foot thesis is that, you know, we basically just need to give people the right tools to unlock that creativity and, and a lot of the domain expertise that's out there. Um, and in terms of like the product itself, if I were to, you know, be kind of demoing it to someone uh, or showing it to someone, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably start by showing them that it's just a dock, a dock surface. So, you know, blinking cursor in a toolbar um, and something that can kind of grow with the evolution of, you know, an individual's, you know, project or uh, family's, you know, trip or um, a team's. Uh, a team's evolution, you know, starting up, kicking off, all the way to tracking a bunch of tasks, uh, um, all the way sort of through the life cycle of something. So um, uh, that's that's maybe the thirty thousand foot view. In terms of um, to specific audiences, you know, if I were to go pitch a you know, product manager in Silicon Valley, that's a that's an easy one because I have a lot of background in that area. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I definitely know this, this very well, having write, you know, writing specs and designs and stuff, uh, back at YouTube and Google. Um, and I think the main observation I'd start with, with someone like that is, um, oftentimes you outgrow and have to move, uh, around your tool set. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you take uh, someone like that, uh, they might start with writing an idea in a doc, uh, and then eventually um, that becomes a set of, you know, structured data, things things that they have to do, a set of tasks, um, uh, and then there's a workflow around those tasks, uh, and then they need to, um, you know, do things like launch, launch that thing. So um, oftentimes that's four or five tools um, with a, a someone like a product manager. Um, uh, and with Coda, the idea is that uh, really the tool can evolve with those needs. You know, you can add multiple sections inside of one document, um, one for your, you know, high-level goals, and then that's, you know, right next to all the tasks that the engineer is working on. Um, and so there's this nice sort of uh, all-in-one-place aspect of it for, for someone who's, you know, usually uh, used to traversing a bunch of different tools. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh yeah, it definitely does. Um, I yeah, there are a few different directions I want I want to go in at once. But yeah. I, I, the, one of the last things you said um, struck me the all in one place aspect of it because um, I definitely see how that's a really powerful like there's a lot of powerful I guess synergies uh, of of having an integrated experience, especially for people who aren't familiar with programming. Uh, but but even for people who are, just it's nice to have an integrated experience. But then um, it kind of, I, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Unix philosophy, but uh, there's like this other philosophy of having a bunch of small things uh, that, that do one job and do it really well that you can kind of use all together. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, that actually reminds me of the, the Rich Hickey talk, uh, simple, simple versus easy. Um, I mean, I think inside the document itself, we actually think a lot about those atomic units. Um, so, uh, and how they compose on each other. So, you know, I think the, the idea uh, of something being sort of simple and single purpose, um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll use an example from our, our document. Um, so inside the document, you can create a button 
Um, and that button, you know, basically does one thing. You 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 press a button, um, and and it takes an, an action like adding a row, um, or you know, refreshing data or something like that. Um, uh, but buttons can obviously be composed um, in in meaningful ways with other things to to do things like take take an action outside of the document. So if you want to send a text message or a Slack message or something like that. Um, you're sort of taking two, two hopefully simple parts, you know, a formula that takes an action outside of the document, like send a Slack message, um, and we're powering that button with that formula. Um, and so that's that's maybe a, a pretty involved answer, maybe uh, or maybe a, a, an involved example. There are probably ones that are that are simpler, um, uh, kind of to your your question. Um, but I think, I, th I think, you know, in many ways we look at the parts inside of the document as those, those building blocks that, that, that makers and people who, who, who need to build tools can compose, um, and less, less of a, um, you know, we have the answer, this is the, this is the single, um, way to do project management, or this is the single way to do CRM. Um, the idea is that you can kind of take these simple parts and build them up. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I see. I see what you mean. So within the tool, you give them a bunch of simple, independent or orthogonal Legos, and they can make their own system. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but the tool itself, I guess, needs to have a, like a lot of those Legos in order for it to be competitive against like a single-purpose CRM versus a single-purpose spreadsheet uh, system used in combination. Um, maybe I. You know, I think. Um, I think one one piece of this is that you have to have um you can't have too many kind of legos on the table or or it becomes difficult to understand uh mm -hmm. which you know which legos you should use when um so i think we we think pretty carefully about um each of those building blocks that we that we add um and if you know i think oftentimes if you decompose apps um like take a crm for example um, what you really have is sort of a, a database layer, um, which we which we have in, in our tables. Um, you have kind of a logic layer, um, you know, which which you can build up through through automations and formulas. Um, and then you have kind of a presentation layer, um, and that presentation layer allows you to do you know things like. Um, add new candidates or add new add new sales companies um, to that to that CRM, um, and each of those, I guess, with with Coda is sort of right on the surface for you, um, uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, there there are really only three, you know, in that case, three or four things that you need to understand in terms of the building blocks that that make up something like that, um, and and obviously there are things that um, CRMs, uh, there are things that CRMs do that are um, uh, quite powerful. Um, but, but interestingly, I think when you compose things like formulas and and buttons or formulas and and tables, um, you can get pretty close. You you mentioned in a, in a prior conversation that one of the main inspirations from Coda came from yours and the, and the founders' work at YouTube, where like the company was run in, in a collection of mostly spreadsheets. Is that <laughs> Yeah. An accurate way to explain it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun story. So, um, 
you know, I, I worked with Shashir, who's one of the founders at YouTube, and uh, Alex, one of the other founders, also worked there. Um, Shashir ran product and design and Eng, um, and I helped lead some of our monetization efforts there. Um, thinking about YouTube as an example, I think is is um, is interesting. I mean, in in many businesses, like when you when you look at the software that they're buying. They, uh, you know, they're buying all these vertical apps, but oftentimes when you just say like, "Hey, um, you know, pull open your laptop and show me what you're, uh, how you're running the the business," um, oftentimes they've been exporting to a spreadsheet and like manipulating that data, um, and and that that's certainly the case at, at YouTube. Um, you know, just despite having amazing engineers uh, capable of building all types of different tools. Um, you know the leaders of that business chose to to run on spreadsheets, and I think the main, uh, I mean, a few different reasons. One is, uh, and I think this is really common. It basically enabled the team to flex like a specific perspective on how a process should run, um, so that they weren't confined to like a, a specific tool's way of doing things. So, like a, a few examples, you know, you want to run a calibration process across a thousand people. You want to do comp planning across a thousand people. You want to run like a OKR process for all your teams. Um, oftentimes uh, we had a perspective on on how those things should should get done. And so instead of um, having some engineer uh, change change a front end or change uh, you know add columns to a database um, at our request, um, it's much easier to, to just build those things up out of a, a spreadsheet. Um, so it was sort of one of those, I think, a good example of like having having an opinion on how something should run, and and so like the 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 team basically picks up the flexible tool that everyone could access. You know, it's like as simple as hitting the share button on a spreadsheet to to give people access to your tool, um, uh, and a lot of that I think served as as inspiration for for some of the things that you see in Coda. So yeah, why why is it? Do you think that spreadsheets are, have been so successful as opposed to like docs? Like, what, why wasn't things being run uh, like in a in a Google Doc, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, I guess I, I would start by saying spreadsheets are, are completely amazing. Um, like we have a lot of folks in inside the company that are um, wizards when it comes to to spreadsheets, um, and I think uh, the main the reason, one of the main reasons to answer your question is that it's a it's a very flexible thinking surface. Um, you know, it has this kind of like open grid that makes makes it feel like anything is possible. Um, that comes with some some positive and negative consequences later, but um, I think as a starting point, uh, it's 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 quite a- approachable in that way. Um, you don't really have to know anything about formulas. You don't really have to know anything. Um, uh, uh, about kind of the deeper parts of a spreadsheet to get started, um, and for the most part, it's you know it's it's based on a very um, uh, a pattern of direct manipulation. You, you know, you kind of highlight what you want to highlight, um, you touch what you want to touch, um, uh, and and for the most part, uh, you get what you expect. Um, so so I think that's part of the reason. Um, I think you know the other part is that uh, spreadsheets in their kind of upper reaches um, uh, with a really flexible formula language um, that 
you know, kind of interestingly started for, for accountants um, has grown into something that you can actually do a lot with. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you've seen uh, some of the crazy spreadsheets that people build. Um, uh, so I don't have to, to go too far into that. But um, eventually, I think what happened is that it kind of became a tool of choice for everyone with a computer um, and, a, and an obvious starting point for things that were going to include um, you know, numbers or calculations or, um, you know, a, basically a place where you could drop a bunch of information in and then add some structure to it. Whereas I think that historically, to go back to your question, um, docs haven't always been a great place to um, add that structure, um, you know, and, and by structure, I mean, even the most simple things like having a task with a status uh, or, you know, um, uh, you know, really, really basic things. That's uh, the the tables inside of Docs historically have been more layout based, um, and so it's it's less of a, a a space that can kind of grow with your idea. Hmm. Yeah, I see what you're saying. The well, I, spreadsheets are also kind of um, like almost superficial in a way that like mm. Airtable is kind of innovated in making it not and, and you guys also mm. um you, you it's more like the, the table is the data and then you have also a presentation layer as well mm. um, but you guys make like a clear distinction when like a google doc is uh it feels like it's it's less semantic it's it, it's some in some ways mm. yeah yeah so it, it seems like we're in a bit of a renaissance of um <laughs> like the next version of, of spreadsheets there's um, it seems like Airtable, and then there was also Fieldbook, which I don't think is anymore. And then, and then Notion recently added um, a kind of a data spreadsheet model. And then, and then you guys, why do you think now is kind of the time for everyone to be rethinking the future of uh, docs and spreadsheets? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I guess the first thing we're saying is like we're. We're big fans of anyone trying to, to make it easy for you know makers to build build what they need. Um, I think this is this is a really positive um, step forward for a lot of people who are you know subject matter experts and, and knowledge workers. Um, uh, in terms of why why we're seeing it now, that's a that's a good question. I think in in many in many ways, like what you see is um uh people um starting to kind of take take back control of the tools that they use um and and this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon but um or at least like in the last few years but um you know just if you look at like the it purchasing process um it used to be that uh people would you know there would be one person who oversaw it and uh, they would have to, you know, sort of procure software in a in a in a way that um, they distribute it to to everybody inside of a company. Um, and I think in the last few years, you've seen a lot of like bottoms up growth of some of these tools, um, like Slack and others, um, where people were sort of having an opinion and choosing um, the tool that they wanted, and then bringing that um, to their business or or to their families or or whatever. Um, mm. I mean, I think it's hard to look past the big 
uh, some of, some of the other big innovations that got us here. So, you know, bringing something like a spreadsheet uh, from your machine to the cloud was a big one. Um, mm, yeah. it, it made it possible for this to be a, a truly collaborative surface, um, uh, and I think that was that was a big step. Um, uh, and then to kind of go beyond that, I think. You know, everyone kind of has their own take on what it is uh, and what it should be. Uh, I, I kind of like to think about it as they're kind of like three big buckets in the landscape. You have people that are um, starting with a doc um, uh, or, or a doc or a wiki-like environment, um, which which I think Notion started with. Um, you have you have the table, um, which obviously Airtable um, has done has done a great job with. Um, and then you also have this kind of bucket of, of apps, um, you know, everything from like small niche apps to, to big things like Salesforce. And, um, and so we, we end up competing or we end up kind of in, in the space of all three of these tools, um, depending on how the user chooses to use Coda um, and, and what they're trying to do. Um, so... You know, some people use this just as a, a simple document surface. Um, it's interesting. We were pulling some stats the other day, and it looks like um, about half of our documents are, are basically used without a table. So um, the people really kind of just leaning into the document with multiple sections to structure to structure kind of prose and written text. Um, that seems surprising to me. Like, why aren't these people using Google Docs? Like, in, in, in theory, I would expect Google Docs to be more feature, full-featured as a document than Coda. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Google Docs is certainly, um, uh, and Word, are, are certainly very mature document surfaces. Um, you know, you, you can do uh, all types of formatting. You can do kind of um, things that I think uh, you would need to if you were, you know, printing regularly, if you're writing a novel, things like that. Um, but I think the reality is that a lot of a lot of the prose that's written um, nowadays is written sort of for collaboration. Um, it's written to send out to a team. It's written as a plan or a goal or a spec or something like that. And so some of the more mature features uh, of something like Docs become a little less important um, in that world. Hmm. Um, and I mean, to, to kind of go directly at the question. I, I think one of the reasons that people pick us up is because, um, you know, I, I love the like Alan Kay quote of simple things are simple and complex things are possible. Um, I think, you know, in our case, the simple things uh, should be simple, i.e. you should be able to just like start with some prose or an idea and, uh, and write some text. Um, uh, and then you should also be able to sort of grow and evolve that. And I think that um, more and more people are choosing alternatives to, to things like Google Docs because um, I think in some senses you you end up outgrowing uh, just in the life cycle of like one project or one you know family trip or one whatever it is you end up kind of outgrowing the capabilities and migrating to a spreadsheet or using what, what we really commonly see in businesses when we first talk to them is this like, um, this combination of docs and spreadsheets where you have like docs that are pointers to spreadsheets and, and back and forth, um, uh, which I've, I've like definitely lived through that world. And it's, um, uh, I think there's, there's probably a better way. So mm. that makes sense. It, I find it, um, 
I guess it's impressive um, that you're able to sell the vision of like, even though you only need a dock right now, like, you know, s start with us because we'll grow with you. Because I feel like most of your value add and like the, the exciting features you bring to the table, they might not get to them until like they've already written a couple of docs. Like, so I, that's what I'm impressed by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one, one thing that goes a long way in that respect is um, just having a template gallery that has lots and lots of examples of things that our makers um, have built and, and like submitted to us or templates that we've made for them. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of, it cues you into the fact that like, oh, this, this later can have a table of tasks that I can use mm -hmm. to, tr to track things. Um, but right now, you know, all I have in my head is an idea. Um, uh, so, so you, you kind of, you, I, I hope that our users glean that from, um, from seeing a lot of the examples that we put out. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, based on the conversation we've had so far, I get the feeling that this is a tool like that it's very easy to sell to a product manager. Um, but I'd be also be curious to hear what other sorts of uh, initial users you're ta targeting now. Like, of course, it's, it's a very general purpose tool. So like, you know, everyone uses spreadsheets. So in theory, everyone would use this. But are, are you focusing on an, some initial people? Uh, another thing I'll, 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 add, I'll add to the question is um, it sounds like you're focused on companies and teams collaborating as opposed to more individual use? Would that also be accurate? Um, yeah, so definitely, um, like you said, it's it's a very horizontal tool. So it's always kind of challenging to define a specific target. Um, uh, but we do see a lot of success in teams. Um, uh, and I think that that just comes back to the fact that it's it's a document surface. Um, it's collaborative. You know, you can you can see uh, the avatars and the people that you're working with in there, and they can collaborate in real time. Um, I, I also think that we have a fairly deeply held belief that um, these makers can kind of come from anywhere. So I think we're we're careful not to label or categorize people too much. Um, and I think we've been inspired and in part um, by Jobs to be Done um, and Clayton Christensen's work there. Um, I guess, so just some other examples to make it more tangible. So, uh, um, maybe, uh, so just interrupt, could you talk more about Jobs to be Done? I haven't heard of that. Yeah, um, so I guess the, the general thesis behind Jobs to be Done is um, users hire uh, or people hire products in their daily lives to solve specific jobs. Um, and uh, that's sort of in contrast to, uh, you know, this set of demographics will buy this product um, sort of causally because of their demographic. Um, and kind of the classic example that he uses is uh, a fun one. It's, it's the milkshake analogy. I don't know, have you heard this? No. Um, so uh, I think they were doing... A, may butcher the story, but uh, I'll, I'll recount it as best I can from memory. So, so basically, uh, they were doing some research for, I think it was like McDonald's or something, and they were trying to figure out um, why people were buying milkshakes at, you know, between like 7 and 9 a.m., and um, this is sort of confusing everybody. And, um, <laughs> uh, and what they figured out was that people were buying these to take on their commute. Um, and so he uses this analogy of um, jobs and uh, commuting um, with the milkshake. Uh, basically, the 
the job or the task that a user or person is, is needs an answer for is uh, something to, to like keep them occupied on their commute. Um, and, and they could solve this with like, uh, you know, a banana, but that, that, that's only like two minutes on a 30 minute commute. Um, and they could solve this with like a glass of water, but that's kind of boring. Um, uh, nowadays people probably use like podcasts on their phones to keep them entertained. Uh, but, yeah, but like, the, the, the general like right idea now. is that, yeah, someone's exactly. listening right now. Exactly. This is a job being done. This person. Yeah. Um, uh, but the general idea is basically that that a milkshake uh, solves this job really well because you know it, it's sort of the slow burn of happiness uh, to to the person who's commuting. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes them 20 minutes to drink this milkshake, and so this this sort of presents as a nice metaphor for um, uh, other instances where people have like a very specific um, job or a very specific task, and it, it's it, it's sort of unimportant what their demographic is and what's more important is that they have a specific job to solve. Um, hmm. uh, yeah. That cool. Thanks. Sense. And j- just, I guess to remind you where you, where you were going before I interrupted you, you were, yep. I think maybe going to give some examples of specific people and, and the problems they're using Coda to solve. Yeah. Um, yeah. So on, on kind of like the, what, what you might call like consumer side, I think we have, you know, people doing everything from organizing trips to planning weddings to, um, you know, splitting expenses with their friends to um, they're sort of a, a, a very wide. Actually, m- more recently, people, some of our community has been really into building games. Um, so people uh, sort of go all over the map on that side of the house. Um, uh, in terms of businesses and teams, I think, you know, obviously, uh, engineering teams, design teams, um, uh, product teams, uh, salespeople, um, recruiting teams. Those are sort of to name the like laundry list. Um, just to like maybe dig into one of those for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a, a story that I really like. So one of the one of the first times I feel like I realized we were kind of onto something. Um, was when I sat down a few years ago now with a 23 year old recruiter and um, like he, he started the conversation by saying, uh, I'm not a spreadsheet person. I don't know how to code. Um, and I was like, it's okay. Um, uh, let's, let's, let's see what you, you know, what you need to do. Um, and, and I kind of like watched and helped him build a tool for his team to track uh, at the time, this is engineering candidates. Um, uh, and it's, you know, the tool is basically like an editable database with a bunch of views for each person and like a few controls like select lists where you could kind of like let people filter. Um, and interestingly, you know, I guess there's a few interesting parts to me about this, this, this example, like one is almost three years later, they're, they're using the same tool. Um, so it was, it was custom and sticky for their team. Um, and, I guess more personally, the neat part for me was sort of like watching him roll out this tool and, and like the sense of pride that he had, um, Mm. and rolling out this tool. Um, uh, and Clayton Christensen again talks about how every great product has kind of like a social functional and emotional aspect. Um, and this was, it was really neat to see sort of like the pride emotion of him making software for the first time, like really presenting a tool that he, he had made. Um, 
and then sort of the social aspect of his team really feeling like, oh, this this person's capable and really valued and and contributing to our team. And so I think that you know when we do our jobs right, um, that's that's the result, right? Like people feel like they can take their subject matter expertise, their domain expertise, um, and and present it to their teams and and build you know what feel like perfectly customized tools to that group of group of people hmm. um and actually to, to maybe take that that example a step further what's really interesting to me is like you know in a traditional software model what would have happened when that team evolved so like that team ended up going from you know like five people to 20 people over the last three years um is like that what would have happened is like they would have had to go back to if that tool was built you know in code, like they would have had to go back to some engineer and ask for, you know, changes uh, continuously. Um, and instead, like they were able to actually change that tool themselves as the team evolved. Um, and so there was there's like a, a really concrete sense of agency that I think is is quite powerful um, when we when we do it right. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a really uh, obvious value proposition like you know impress your coworkers with your superpowers <laughs> yeah i i yeah i i i and i think many engineers feel like you know we feel that sort of pride all the time it's like a lot of what drives us um so it, it's cool that you get to democratize that you know, like i built a thing that you can all use and you'll think of me fondly while you use it yeah and and i think you know i think there's something really impactful about having someone like think about themselves differently in that way um you know think oh i'm just as capable as as other people at, at making things again um mm. like the the analogy i like to use is you know when you ask a, a group of like four-year-olds um you know who's an artist like everybody raises their hand um but then like you know you, you get the same group at like you know 40 and like zero people <laughs> raise their hand and and i feel like in in general like the artist has kind of been beaten beaten out of people when it comes to to like software and tools and and so i and so far as we can like reinvigorate that that uh, that makes me happy mm. so do you find that uh the story you told of, of someone starting this new system from scratch and it, it growing over time to being central to the business that that's kind of more the approach or do you also find people um, migrating existing spreadsheets or CRM systems into Coda? What's like the breakdown? I don't know if you have the numbers on that. What's like the breakdown of from starting from scratch and growing or, or migrating into it? Yeah. Um, I mean, interestingly, that process was, uh, I think if I recall correctly, that process was run out of like a custom tool or like a, a uh, like kind of a niche vertical tool um, that then they realized that that tool kind of didn't fit them. And so they ended up um, migrating that into a spreadsheet and then from a spreadsheet into, into Coda. Um, so um, in terms of the, the numbers and where we see migration from, it's, it's really all over the map. It's not, uh, there's no simple statement to make there. there mm -hmm. We see people migrating from docs, um, we see people migrating from like project management tools of all kinds, um, vertical apps like little mini CRM systems, um, you know, specific recruiting tools, and a lot of spreadsheets. So, 
Mm-hmm. And um, are you? I don't. I, I don't exactly know how to ask this question in a precise way, but um, I guess how often are people customizing things versus just using them, like customizing them once, or customizing things like. I wouldn't be all that surprised if people customize things like kind of once a year and then maybe made a few tweaks here and there, but mostly we're just using it as a app or app slash spreadsheet. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, I think this is, it's, it's sort of worth pointing out that it depends on the type of doc that you're talking about. So, you know, as I was mentioning before, like half of our active docs don't, don't have tables. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, like they, they're constantly being customized because like people are writing meeting notes or people mm-hmm. are, you know, writing, uh, ideas or designs or whatever. Um, but, but sort of maybe more to your question for, mm-hmm. for like more involved docs, um, that like might wholesale replace another system or like a, a workflow that, that mm-hmm. the team previously had. Um, oftentimes what we see is this pattern of like two or three, um, makers kind of like co co-creating the tool for, for their team. Um, uh, and, and this like makes sense, you know, given, given a role, like, you know, something that's probably familiar to, to your listeners is like, if it's a product team, like the product manager and the engineering lead or the product manager and the design lead, um, are kind of like building the ideal workflow for their team. Um, and, uh, that's, that's, basically a general setup process. Um, and so the, the doc kind of goes through like lots of iterations in that, that early phase. And then, like you said, um, it may get used for a period of time and then, um, some, something changes, right. Um, the, the project like winds down or, um, the team grows and the effort like expands considerably. Um, and then you go through like another iteration of that, that building process. Um, uh, to use like a, a real example, um, um, there's a, a customer, a set of set of folks at Uber that used us to to redesign the driver app. It was kind of like the largest redesign of the driver app that that um, Uber has done, um, and that that followed a very similar pattern. Like you had um, really two people setting up a construct for like hundreds of engineers to go work. Um, and so, you know, for for a week, they were kind of building out the, the perfect system. That's actually in our, in our template gallery, hmm. um, kind of in that top row, if, if you're curious. Um, they were kind of like building up this perfect system so that like all these teams that are distributed all over the world could then, um, you know, enter their information about like how, how that project is going and kind of break apart this massive project into to like, you know, coherent parts. Um, and then, uh, and then they kind of like let, you know, hundreds of engineers, hundreds uh, of people loose on that tool. And then over the life cycle of the project, they ended up building out, um, you know, other aspects of it later. So, so sort of like at the midway point, they built this really neat kind of like um, pie chart, which is basically like a progress of like how close they are to code complete. Um, and that became like the thing that they started every meeting with. It was like, how close are we to, to actually shipping this thing? Um, and, and that's kind of what I mean by like this, this, I, w- this is ideally a tool that can evolve with the life cycle of, you know, a, a really small project or a really small set of tracking requirements to, um, to something like very, very large. Um, and even within that project kind of evolve with it. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd be curious to know, 
uh, like what what sort of agency people like uh, have like down farther down the food chain? Like if, if certain yeah. engineers, you know, wanted to customize things, um, like do, yeah. do they have the permission to do that? And how do they make sure they're not like stepping on other people's toes or like messing with other integrations that are core? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely um, it's a tough question when you when you're organizing like hundreds of people. Um, it's almost like the um, the flexibility of the tool is is working against you here because like there's certain things that you want to have be like no no these are like rigid that like we're kind of top down deciding for you as right. like the, the organizers and then but you know we also want to give you flexibility on things we don't care about. Right, right, yeah. There's probably a couple things to say about that question. Like maybe the first is that. Um, because it's a, a document, uh, you have what you're used to seeing in documents, which is um, some basic set of permissions. So you can give people, you know, view only access. You can give people comment only access or edit access. Um, and you know, so in this case, like for the the executive team, I think they they only gave you access because like they didn't want um, executives going in there and changing changing a bunch of things. Um, uh, but to your question on kind of like further further down the chain and, and you know, if I'm an engineering manager in uh, Dublin, uh, what does it look like to change this tool? Um, one of the things that we see really commonly is people uh, creating kind of their perfect view um, of a set of data. So in this case, you know, you might have one, one like Uber like task table um, or like one, one features table or something like that. And um, uh, and then an individual team go, goes in and creates a section, and that section is sort of they title it like this is our section as the you know um, design team or something like that, um, and they all they're doing is like creating a filtered view of that larger data set, but kind of importantly, it's all the same data set, right? So it's kind of right through from that view to the the core table and back, um, and so. The, the part, you know, if you were to ask um, the, the folks from Uber, like, I think that they would, they have said to us, like, this, this is sort of the central piece of this. Like, there's one source of truth for all of this data, and yet I can have as many different views of that data as mm -hmm. I want, and I can, you know, add controls on top of that to do additional filters, and I can add buttons to make it easy for people who are just contributors to that document to come in um, and and add a new feature or, or whatever it is. So, so uh, I, like a, yeah. a, a quick quick idea. Um, yeah. Let's say, so we have a single source of truth for features for the whole Uber company, and then we're in Dublin. We f have a filtered view for just the the features we're responsible for. And let's say for whatever reason we want to add a column mm -hmm. to because we, we care about some extra piece mm -hmm. of metadata on features yeah. that isn't in the source of truth table. Yeah. Um, I guess the question is two part. One. Could, if we added a column, would it like accidentally, like would, <laughs> would we kind of unintentionally add a column to the whole table and then people at HQ would get upset at us? Um, and then the second question is, yeah, is there a way to add that attribute in a way that, that doesn't, uh, other people don't even see it? Yeah, this is a, it's a very uh, deep question, but I'll, uh, I'll do my best to kind of sum summarize a few parts of this. Um, so, uh, so I guess, to maybe start from the concrete. Um, in this case, like one of the first things that the designers of this document did um, was go go off and get all the trackers that each team wanted to use. And so there was a common understanding of like which columns are important. 
Um, and interestingly, like the alternative that they were looking at was like, you know, literally dozens and dozens of spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those spreadsheets like had slightly different column names, but effectively <laughs> representing the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of like one obvious win for them as the designers of this tool that I now like don't have to reconcile all these like different, you know, slightly different names that represent the same thing across all these things. So as the, as the designers of the, the, the tool for 300, you know, plus people, what they did was they did like the column reconciliation, if you will. Um, yep. and, and like agreed upon that, um, uh, uh, sort of down a level from that, like, let's say, let's say that they still, they still missed that, column for the, the, the person in Dublin, um, that, that person, you know, if they have edit access to the document can, can certainly add that column. And it turns out that, 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 that's actually really important and useful too, because like they, they may want to, um, branch some variant of that features table in a way that's like helpful for them. Um, and so as long as they're not, uh, quote, like polluting the other views, um, by like forcing that column to be added everywhere and all the other views, then uh, that mostly gets out of the way for everybody else. Um, at certain points, I think uh, folks are finding uh, the tool very useful and and adding lots of columns. And so I think that there was this question around like, oh, is there a different level of permissions here where we can say, you know, people should only be able to add uh, rows and edit rows, but not you know change change. Uh, uh, the columns or like, you know, the formulas and some of the existing columns and stuff like that. And that's, that's something that we're certainly thinking, thinking about and have been prototyping, um, some answers to, um, but, but, but at its core, I think, you know, in a place like Uber, that's super collaborative and trust, you know, trust people to do the right thing. Um, uh, the, the ability to add columns as that engineering manager allows you to evolve the tool in a way that's helpful to you. Right. Um, and ultimately that's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then if we wanted to do it, like it occurs to me that you could like, uh, the Dublin team could create a new table that just references the old table and then has as many columns as we want. Yeah, that's right. Like if, if it actually became, you know, if it was materially different in it's, it's data structure or, or it was, um, it sort of felt divergent enough from that, like first features table or whatever it was. Um, that's right. They, they could also create a table and then, you know, look up from the other table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you, the, the tagline seems to be docs as powerful as an app. Is that right? Or, or not? Am I, did I miss it? Uh, no, that's right. I mean, the, I think the thesis is that you can build a doc as powerful as an app. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, we haven't really talked talk much about mobile, but um, we spent a, a bunch of time on mobile, um, making sure that it actually felt app like, I think, I think we've been f- saying this phrase for a while. And, and before we launched mobile, people would sort of hold up their phones and say like, oh, you mean like this, this, this uh, mobile app on my phone? And we'd kind of say, yeah, eventually. Um, and, uh, and nowadays um, we can kind of more confidently say, yes, um, it's something that feels just like an app on your phone. And, and there's a couple, I'm happy to go into it. There's a couple things yeah. that we do to make that, um, that, that feel like an app. Yeah. Yeah. How, how'd you pull that one off? <laughs> um, yeah. It, it, we're really 
kind of just getting started on on pulling it off i would say um but but our 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 first version of it does a couple things um i mean i think the first thing that's probably noticeable is we take um the section section list that's on the left if you're on desktop um, and the whole idea behind the section list is basically you can add you know effectively multiple pages or multiple um, different spaces uh, to the same document and so what we do is we take that section list and then we flip it and make it feel like native navigation on iOS and Android um, and uh, that kind of gives you this sense right away that you're you're in an app um, and so you put it at the bottom is that that's right you put it? that's right yeah like on ios it's it's just a little tab bar on the bottom um and, and where is it in android i don't even know where android i have navigation is <laughs> and i have an android phone <laughs> <laughs> yeah and android it, it's it's sort of similar um, oh, okay yeah and then i mean there's some there's some like material design choices that were in the midst of finishing um but um but sort of generally the same principle um so yeah, that that's sort of like the first noticeable thing is that you get this experience of like, oh, this, you know, I open this up, um, I open one of these docs and, and it feels kind of application-like because the navigation feels native to the, the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess some of the other things that we do uh, that are noticeable. So um, uh, one interaction that, f- that feels um, very kind of app-like is in tables when you have um, buttons and especially multiple buttons. Um, we allow you to kind of like, uh, first of all, we, we create a card that is uh, a nice sort of clean summary of that uh, of that that row, and then we allow you to like swipe the card. Um, you know, interaction most people are probably familiar with from stuff like Gmail, um, where you can swipe to archive. Um, but in our case, um, you know, maybe to use a customer example, um, we have a customer who. Uh, built an inventory tracker to track bikes um, from a bike shop. And uh, the realities of um, being in a bike shop all day is that you're not behind a computer all the time. Um, and this particular set of people were, were like out in the field. And so uh, they were kind of constantly on their mobile device. And, um, you know, if you want to like check in or check out a bike or say like this bike needs repair, um, uh, on desktop, there are kind of like three buttons, and this is also in the template gallery if you want to go look look at how this works. Um, but on desktop, this is kind of like three buttons that say like check in, check out, um, and needs repair. And on mobile, when you pull up like that same list of bikes, you get like a nice little picture of that bike uh, and some of the details about the bike and its status. And then you can kind of like swipe um, to take those actions. And that feels, um, it feels sort of, native app like and interestingly like is a is a person who created that doc and configured that doc is like you don't really have to do anything um we just take those actions uh from buttons and transform them um to those swipe actions on mobile so, um, so it's kind of, yeah so uh, so swipe right is one of the buttons swipe left is the other and, and what's what, the third button um we actually we split this the swipe right right now it's only swipe right oh, okay. um we split it into kind of like three actions. If you've seen, I think this is also a fairly common pattern, but you, you swipe and then you kind of get like three options. Yep. And you press one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, I guess that's a couple of ways that we've done, done so far, have a bunch of other ideas. Um, I guess one of the other ones that people have really started 
latching onto recently is like, you know, imagine you're you're doing that same inventory um, tracking and you want to take a picture of every bike. Um, so you can kind of like just be out in the field and take a picture of, of the part that needs repair or whatever and upload it directly to that row um, from the phone's camera. Um, so you have like a, a sort of nice entry point to, to native things mm. that you're used to doing on your phone all the time. Uh, a camera, a, a image column like that's right present itself as a camera button and you can either upload or take a photo that's right yeah mm. oh yeah. i see there are all these little clever things you can do that just like automatically behind the scenes adapt the interface to mobile yeah that's right that's right yeah exactly and the i mean that, that's sort of like the fundamental premise here is that like you shouldn't have to be an app designer app developer type person um you know, we we do most of that automatically for you. Um, you know, we, we switch the tabs for you. We, we switch buttons for you. We we take abstractions like the, the image column and do that for you. Hmm. So um, I'd be curious to, to hear a bit about where code is going, like the fuller vision. So right now I get the impression that it's um, an internal tools product. Like we, like we spoke about before, you have to have a certain amount of trust with the people you share edit access with, like, you know, they're like on your team, they're not gonna be nefarious agents. Um, and it feels kind of like like Google Docs or, or like spreadsheets, you know, like use it with your friends and, and, and your coworkers. Do, do you ever see it as being, you say the word app, do you ever see it as being something that like uh, a company would make as an external app that they, you know, like they'd sell things on it or, or have, have external users? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, um, maybe I'll, I'll get back to the full vision um, piece in a second, but just to answer your your latter question, I mean, we we ran um, recently. We ran a, a kind of contest um, called Maker Fest with Product Hunt, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the idea behind that was to to get people building app like things. Um, and you can see, I mean, there's just a crazy array of things that uh, of very application like concepts that people built um, on that, and that. You know, th- those are sort of purpose built to be um, external in the sense that like they, those people weren't building it for their internal company. And in many cases, like they were they were an individual person um, with no with no company or, um, you know, doing it uh, on the side. Um, so for sure, uh, we're already starting to see this pattern of people you know, building tools uh, for other people. And, and could you give me an example of like something? Yeah, yeah. Um, probably like the, let's see, let me see what the most interesting examples are. Um, I guess like a couple of the examples that were interesting to me. First, um, you know, people building like very basic kind of like things, things that are their first instances if you were to like pick up a programming language so it might build like a to-do list or something like that mm-hmm. um uh and then um you know to take it a step further um because we have things like a now formula and and you can write you know complex functions people started building um you know pomodoro style techniques where i can like start a timer and um uh and and like time my to-do list um um, all the way to um, uh, some fairly crazy games um, people people built. Um, more recently, someone kind of had uh, four buttons that control like up, down, left, and right, um, where you can kind of like walk a rectangle 
uh, around. Um, and, and, uh, and like some of these examples start to start to feel, um, very much like apps that people like want other people to use. Um, mm -hmm. and right now I think, you know, we, we still have a lot of work to do on the, the kind of publishing side of this. Um, how do we make it easy for those people, um, to take one of those concepts and like really sort of publish it broadly? Um, you know, we're starting from a, a nice foundation in the sense that like sharing a document's fairly easy. You hit the share button and then you decide like who, who should have access to it. Um, but there's probably a lot more that we can do. Um, uh, I know that there's a, a bunch more things that we can do um, to make it easy to take like one of these app-like concepts and, and distribute it more broadly. I think the other, the other interesting thing is um, when you start to have kind of like derivative work, and we see this in the template gallery a lot, um, where, where someone will take a, a template, um, you know, to use a simple example, like my to-do list is in there. Um, uh, they'll take a simple ex example like that, and then they'll sort of build upon it, and then they'll like resubmit it to us. And they'll say like, oh, this is like a variant of that. Um, so you kind of get this like interesting branching effect of, um, being able to, to have someone else's perspective la layered on to, to, to other people's. Do you have a, a story for managing variants and like merging things that are kind of similar together? Yeah. So we've, we've thought about this a bit and, um, we have some prototypes. I don't, we don't have a, a like a, a perfect answer for it right now. Um, but it's certainly something that we're thinking about. Um, in many ways, like you, uh, the, the merging the variants um, sometimes feels unnecessary because um, uh, because like someone has taken kind of a different perspective on it and what we want to see is kind of the breadth of these different perspectives so eventually when you're you know searching in the template gallery um, or you're searching for a solution really um, uh, you can you can sort of see all the permutations uh, and and get to you know, play with each of them and then decide which variant kind of works for you. Hmm. Um, so in some sense, like we, we could go solve that problem. Um, we have some ideas of, of how we might do it. Um, but you know, it, it probably starts with kind of fundamentally questioning the, the problem. Hmm. That, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, so I think when I asked the question of the full oh, yeah. vision and, uh, yeah. and for if you build externally facing tools, I thought that was the same question, but apparently there's a, a, a different, there's a distinction between that question and what's the full vision for Coda. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess like the, the full vision might be a little more, um, kind of back to, back to where we started. I guess I, I kind of like to think about it in two ways. Like there's basically the kind of micro level and there's, there's, sort of bubbling back up to the macro level. Um, on the micro level, um, I, I personally really like to think about like the individual stories of like how we change change people's lives and how how we have the opportunity to make them feel, you know, different about themselves in a really positive way. Um, uh, taking like that domain expert, that subject matter expert uh, and enabling them to actually build the tool that they need um, and, and like have a thinking surface that um, can evolve with their thought process like that that on an individual level I think is 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 our our kind of core aim um, and it's it's a little bit back to the story I was, I was telling you about that that recruiter um, like on an individual mm -hmm. level 
Um, I mean, I think if we bubble like all the way back up to the, the macro level, um, uh, I think we have a, like a really unique opportunity to marry, um, you know, something that is like really approachable, i.e. a doc with, um, uh, you know, the power of uh, app, sort of application-like concepts. And the sort of punchline there is that like, we can change how like, you know, teams and communities and families um, can, can grow and evolve. Um, and, you know, that, that I think is um, incredibly powerful if we can, we can do that right. Um, uh, actually, it, it makes me think a little bit of my, my oldest son. So I have a, I have a four-year-old who's finishing um, preschool at a, a Reggio Emilio school. I don't, are, are you familiar with Reggio mm -hmm. philosophy? Yeah. But so, I guess maybe, maybe just give us a brief overview. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the, the basic idea behind Reggio is that k kids, like, learning should be self-guided and rooted in, you know, experience and exploration. Um, and kind of importantly, they're equal members to the broader community of adults and, and kids. Um, and so a lot of, like, learning environments, teachers are viewed as, like, the ones that hold all the knowledge and, like, they, they impart that knowledge to their students, but Reggio sort of, like, flips that. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in a Reggio philosophy, like kids are meant to construct knowledge through exploration and observation and discussion. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to add anything, anything to that based on your, your knowledge of. I, I didn't actually quite realize that it was so, um, anyways, uh, but I, 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 I knew that it was, it was a, a, it had was a very progressive feel to it, but that sounds very similar to, you know, what, uh, my own educational philosophy. So that's, kind of interesting oh, cool. to, to find out so it <laughs> sounds like very construction constructivist like seymour Papert. exactly yeah it's very constructivist thing. yeah um yeah so like to, to make that kind of abstract concrete like an example for my son is he's basically their class has been following this thread uh of an artist named martin perrier um uh, that they found like in the sf moma and like one of their early visits and so like Basically, what started as an observation of uh, this this particular sculpture became um, like a six month kind of observation, exploration, discussion about like th this artist's work, um, and and it kind of followed the kids' interests, uh, which is kind of the important important thing. And I think, you know, if I were to think about like the grand vision for Coda, I think that there there are actually some parallels here, both like externally as a product and and internally as a company. Um, so from, from an external kind of like product standpoint, you know, concretely in line with Reggio, we're, we're kind of saying that the tool maker knows how this should work. Like the, the, um, the, the kid should be the guide, right? Um, the maker, the subject matter expert can create and discover, um, and like create knowledge. Um, and, and so concretely that means something like, you know, starting with the pros of an idea that grows and evolves. Um, and, and their kind of like knowledge evolves as they like structure data or like manipulate that data. Um, um, and, and from kind of maybe from the other side, I think, you know, as someone who's like building, building a product and design team, I think about it, you know, from a team standpoint, and I think there are parallels as well. Um, namely that like, we don't, we don't act like we have all the answers We we hire like really smart, 
um, and curious people. And we kind of like treat everyone as equal members of that community. And, and the idea is that they can like observe, um, you know, our users and explore and discuss and kind of like learn together. And so the combination of those two, um, we think create, create uh, you know, the right conditions to, to make a great product. Um, and, and so I think, you know, I think a lot of people identify with this idea, especially probably in, in your audience, identify with this idea that um, our tools have like failed, you know, some, some large class of people. Um, and so I, the, the way I've, I personally like to think about, you know, the, the grand vision of, uh, of Coda is, you know, we kind of need to do what Regio does and flip the existing paradigm. Um, you know, you shouldn't have to know what Docker and React are to make software. Um, uh, we think it can, it can just start with a simple doc um, uh, and people can, can sort of evolve their knowledge with it. Mm. Well said. I, I agree with you that it's... Um a common feeling we all have that this this should be the way the world is or especially like our virtual worlds they're like infinitely moldable and yet so many people can't mold them uh, so but but what well said um so i i i feel like we, we could end there that's like a, like a very high point to to be like okay well, well get back to work you know like, like that, sounds, that, that sounds useful <laughs> um but I, but i i also wanted to drill, in, uh, drill into a few uh, specific like product choices, particularly because that, that's what you work on the product stuff. So I wanted to, yeah. to get to, to drill in there. Yeah. Um, so one of my personally favorite features is the formula bar, um, yeah. in Coda. Uh, and there are like a lot of things I like about it. Um, for starters, <laughs> it's, Great. um, very concrete, uh, where like if there, if there's live data, uh, to be had, it'll evaluate it with some live data, like kind of pick a good default so you can see what's going on immediately. Um, yep. Or if there's like some evaluation to be had, it'll like partially evaluate whatever can be partially evaluated, which is also yep. really cool. Um, and then another thing I really like is that the the types of, of various, like the structure of the data of various variables using expressions yeah. are, are explained via um, like an icon, so like a calendar icon for times and yeah personal icon yeah. for, for users. And then where, where I think it gets really cool is um, there are even subtle things. Like if you're dealing with a list, um, it, it, it'll kind of look like a list. It'll look like there are multiple things of yeah. that type. And then and then also even more subtle, but, but I like it. If you have two things that have the same exact type, but they're from different instances of, they're from like different objects, they'll be colored differently. So yeah. I like, I like yeah. it too. So anyways, so yeah. I, I mostly just want to compliment you, but also um, I'd be curious to hear about uh, like the, how the, the product and design work went into yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't take credit for, for that. That, that you know, back to the internal teams and creating kind of the right conditions for, for those types of things to happen. You know, we had a, we had a formulas team that really obsessed over the details. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that you picked up on, um, I think you, you pretty much ticked the whole list. So, so, <laughs> so, then, so nice, nice, nice investigation. Um, yeah, we had a, we had a, a product and design engineering team that really obsessed over a lot of those details. Um, um, and, and I, I guess I could go into a couple of them, but, um, I think you did a, a great job of explaining. I think, you know, one of the, one of the ones that I was really excited to see was this, you know, this idea of like previewing or intermediate values. Um, and I think mostly because I, I often come at, you know, writing formulas and, and programming from a fairly naive standpoint. And so um, it, 
to me, it it did a great job as as you identified um, of kind of giving you a clear sense of like where you were and the shape of the data that you were holding. Um, so when you're holding, you know, an array, like you can kind of see like a comma separated list in that um, in that intermediate value, and and you 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 kind of can make sense of what you might want to do next because you're seeing that intermediate value and you know it it uh, a lot of this work I, I think was inspired by um, you know some of Brett Victor's work and um, and just that this idea that like you shouldn't have to play play a computer in your head um, uh, and so uh, you know the, the formula space for us has always been pretty important because it's been in many ways the the glue or like the interface between the blocks and so you know the things you know an example of what you you mentioned um you know the type icons uh placed on the chip itself is a very specific decision because we saw users um who are trying to make things like equivalency statements um uh with types that were different and and running into problems and so we could in many ways preempt um, some of the that confusion by showing, you know, oh, these actually have two different icons. I wonder why that is. Let me go inspect um, some of these items to figure out um, why they, why I might not be able to write equals here. Um, uh, so they're, you know, they're they're born both from sort of a philosophical viewpoint um, on you shouldn't have to to play a computer in your head. Um, and a very practical one, which like we have, you know, we have lots and lots of users every day um, asking us questions on intercom uh, saying why, you know, why can't I write this formula? Um, and so we, you know, we, we try as best we can to marry the two. But um, yeah, major, major kudos to that team for, for really um, digging deep um, and chunking up what is uh, a very difficult set of problems. Mm. So uh, another thing I, that I noticed that um, I liked, but also thought was a, a curious choice was that um, you seem, especially in the, like the documentation of the tutorial videos, to be pushing the dot operator instead of prefix based functions that people are used to from Excel. So like yeah. the dot operator, like is kind of like method, like a method operator. Like I think people yeah. see it a lot in, in Ruby, yeah. almost yeah. infixy. Yeah. Why did you choose to kind of, you know, show people this new way of because I think both work in, in Coda, as far as I saw it. You, you can use the prefix function or you can use it infix with this dot operator. Why are you teaching people this new way of doing things? Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's a good observation. Basically, both both should work. So I think that the idea is that if you are if you want to stick with your familiar pattern, um, you should be able to. Um, that was a, a pretty intentional choice. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think you know, when the team created the formula language and, and, and sort of the first formula builder years ago, they they certainly questioned like the current method of prefix functions. And, and I think that, you know, uh, they have all kinds of challenges. Um, uh, so maybe I'll frame them as kind of the positives on the dot operator side. Um, the main one I think is, or I guess there's probably th three, two or three main benefits. The first one is readability. So um, you just have less characters to confront, um, uh, and so there's a there's a compactness argument um, to that readability. Um, the other one is like you you just have less grammar, um, so you don't have to like 
you know, the thing that you're used to doing in Excel, or at least I am, is like counting the parentheses at the end of a function um, and figuring out like, you know, sort of scope-wise where I am. Um, uh, the dot operator also allows you to, to chain functions, which, which can be helpful in certain cases. Um, I think the main one that I like, and, and you a little bit alluded to this um, in, in your uh, uh, observation on the formula builder, but um, it allows us to do some pretty elegant things with auto-suggest um, and hmm. projections. So, you know, if I just type table, so if I'm in the mindset of like, oh yeah, what was that table called? It was called to-dos, um, and I type, you know, to, I, I get, um, you know, at the global document scope, I get a list of tables, I tab into that, I hit dot, uh, and now I have a list of all the columns. So I don't really have to remember uh, the shape of all those things. Um, and um, some of that's possible in, in prefix, uh, in the prefix world, but um, I think we, you know, the combination of um, improving that auto-suggest um, uh, and, and readability um, make it something that we want to we mm. push. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of the um, auto-suggest improvements. That, that, that's great. Yeah, and I think a lot of... I mean, the way that we view formula documentation is that, like auto auto suggest should really be the formula documentation that you use, mm -hmm. um, uh, as opposed to like having to having to like have two tabs open in your browser. Mm -hmm. um, so the, there's there's a bunch more we can do there. I think um, we do a decent job today. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I uh, in my experience using Coda, uh, the, I was very impressed with the the, the way that the autocomplete worked and also. The, doc the documentation in the in the formula builder was uh, like the same as the documentation. I didn't quite realize that for a bit. Like I I, I opened up the documentation in a, in a separate tab and I was like, oh wait, it's right. the same. Like I, I can close this tab. Right. Like it doesn't give me any extra, right. any extra information. The right. the only time that I actually used the the, the separate tab of of things was when I tried a few autocomplete things for function to find functions and the ones that i was expecting to be there weren't there didn't do what i expected so i was like hmm like which one of these will do what i want i had to kind of like look through them all right so right. it's kind of hard yeah. to build around that yeah yeah it's a it's a nice way to kind of like discover the superset mm -hmm. um, yeah and, and kind of like chunk them up into groups if you're looking at you know currencies mm -hmm. or numbers or whatever yep yep yeah. yep exactly yeah 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 yeah, because I can like ignore the currency ones. Like that's not what I'm trying to do right now. I'm right. trying to do something with like grouping, you know, whatever. Right. Right. So, um, the, the way I just framed the, the question about the dot operator, I think, was, um, I guess, kind of similar to the, uh, Brett Vick, the sorry, the Rich Hickey talk that you brought up of simple made easy. Um, it's a distinction I've actually been thinking a lot about in the last day or two because someone else, oh, cool. someone else, um told me that I need to rewatch it because <laughs> the way I, the way I've been talking about it got a little bit blurry. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Th so the distinction between, um, I, I guess the distinction I want to make now is kind of different than his yeah. distinction. Um, the distinction between, um, like the dot operator, it seems definitely based on the way you described it and, and, and that context to be like the, where, like where you want to take people, but potentially, it's less familiar and so you you have to you know, decide if you want to just let go with what's familiar for people or give them the more powerful slash better slash simpler yeah. 
option in the long yeah. run. And yeah. so I, I think that's like an interesting tension to look at. And so yeah. there are a few places in the tool where I feel like you potentially went with the easier route um, or more familiar route. You, you took you instead of the more powerful in the long run, but also less familiar. Um, mm. I, I don't know if there are any places that, that come to mind immediately. I have a few um, if you want me to provide one. Yeah, maybe I'll sit. I'll just say like one one thing about yeah um, that, and then I yeah I'd love to dig in wherever. Um, I mean, I, I think that we end up doing a a lot of investigation on kind of like the familiar versus like what what we think could be like the more powerful, mm -hmm. the more mm -hmm. kind of like right mm -hmm. model going forward, um, and and like there there are big choices like that. So you know that the first obvious big choice is like um, instead of having you know, a productivity kind of tool, um, or like a, a tool for building other tools be like three or four different tools. Like this is, this is one tool. Um, uh, and that was sort of like different, different than the familiar, um, all the way down to, you know, the, the things that we're, we're, we're talking about now. So I think in many ways, like that's what we asked our, our product and design and engineering teams to do is like, go, go look at this particular component, um, go go look at um, all of the jobs that it needs to serve for like a very horizontal set of users. Um, sort of try to distill it down to its essence of like what it's what it's sort of functioning as. Um, you know, is like a, a simple atomic like single threaded thing, uh, and then decide which direction we we should head. Um, so it's I think that's very that's like that's like part of our DNA as a company. Um, and in so far as anyone's interested in, in in doing that on a regular basis, you should you should come join us. <laughs> there are two that, that come to mind of instances that I'd be curious to hear more of the the like calculus, the internal calculus, and why you went one direction instead of the other. Um, so one one thing that made me laugh is um, how you have uh, buttons that often put, can push other buttons. That's yeah. like a, a core feature or core like interaction paradigm that, that I saw people using and, and you talking about. And so my first reaction to that was, I think I laughed because it's just like a funny idea of buttons, <laughs> pushing buttons. Yeah. And then um, my second reaction was like, oh, like that, that like how clever, you know, pe people yeah. already know what buttons are. They already know what pushing buttons are. Like it's so concrete, like yeah. one button can go push, push the buttons. Um, but then uh, when I was using it, um, it, it, it's for some reason it just it didn't feel so elegant um mm. or it didn't it it didn't feel as powerful as um i i think to, to be more concrete i think what i was trying to do maybe you can give me give a better example is yeah. um i wanted one button to change all things about us uh all rows in a table um but the the pattern to do that at least when i tried to do it seemed to be you have to create a, a column in that table and a, a button column in that table, and th the button column of that table will actually mutate each row. And so you have one button press every button in a column. Is that did I forget yeah, something? No, no, that that that's right. Um, I mean, I can give you like in in practice why this this ends up working quite well. Mm, um, sure. Like from a, a user perspective, so like a common thing that we see um, people doing is uh, with buttons is um, sort of pairing this like this single unit of a button with um, uh, what behind the scenes is actually a function to call to call slack so like um, concretely the case is 
you know, I've got a, I've got like a, a list of things that like my team has to do, and um, I, I want to post an update like individually to each of them to say like, hey, can you, can you come update this, this task? Like this is sort of a typical like project management, you know. <laughs> Thing yep. that you have to do in a team sure. um and like you know the the analog way of doing this is like uh you know walking over to everybody's desk but like everyone's not in the same office and so the the next way i can do this is like copy paste from uh, a browser go over to slack write my message paste the row in um and do like rinse and repeat this like 20 times um uh, but interestingly like what i end up doing is not necessarily like i don't ping everybody all the time i ping like some people some of the time um so like maybe there are three people who have like outstanding stuff and they haven't updated that task in a while um when i have a column that is a button that sends a slack message to that person um in practice like what we see is people you know sort of periodically hitting one two three four of those buttons right saying like oh these these three things needs to be updated but i don't want to ping everybody and then you sort of like pair that with the case of like, all right, it's like, you know, Monday morning and like we need to develop a plan for the week. And so like I'm going to hit the like Uber, you know, the Uber button, which is basically going to go go push all the buttons and like ping everybody. Um, so so in practice, like, you know, it it it, it was interesting. It, it kind of felt funny to me at first, but it, it ends up to solve the problem quite well um, because you, you sort of come at this idea from like two different places as a user, um, wanting to kind of, you know, in this simple example, like wanting to ping everybody versus wanting to, to sort of individually um, uh, find and update things. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I see that perspective. It, it starts very concrete. You, you build a function to just ping one user and then you abstract over that to all users. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I guess yeah. we're, we're I guess to, to be fair, um, where I was coming from is like, what's familiar to me is being able to like speak more abstractly as a programmer. So I was, I was, you know, expecting to be able to, you know, just start from the abstract, but I was like, yeah. Oh no, wait, like I have to go and do this other thing that, that feels too, too concrete or, or whatever. Um, but I, yeah. but I guess that's just my bias and not actually inherent to the problem. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, it, it, it's always like challenging sort of figuring out the right way to take a concept like that and, and explain it um, uh, to an end user. And I think, you know, I think the product design philosophy here is like that, that these should be atomic parts um, uh, so that you, you can like understand them and reason about them individually. Like I don't, I don't actually have to understand the, um, you know, the, the broader, button that pushes all the buttons i can understand like the the single button column because that's what i end up using in my view well so um i guess maybe what um my criticism would probably be or, or my question really would be um um a a column that's a button uh, like i think of that as being a function of type whatever the, the row is so it's like a function that, mm -hmm. that operates on a row mm -hmm. um and so sometimes i would want to use that row in a more like a, basically first class functions i guess the thing that i, I felt myself wanting yeah um, but um yeah. so yeah. i don't know do, do you plan to add like 
those sorts of th- those sorts of more superpowers, but but are also like much harder for people to get their heads around. Yeah, I mean, um, some of that is actually happening kind of in the background, um, and I think there's a there's a question of um, how much we we end up exposing to users, and I think um, uh, uh, pr- probably in the future we'll we'll continue to expose more and more, um, uh, but I think you know right now uh we we want to make that um you know as accessible as possible uh, at the moment but um definitely have have the option to to change that in the future so yeah one other one to just run 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 by you is um i i was importing some data in coda from spotify i wanted to do some like analytics on Mm, on like different things like that and um i found it to be very challenging because, uh, to add the data I pulled into a table. Yeah. I like had to do it. I'd like, yeah, yeah it was just, yeah. what, what I really wanted was a function called table that would take a list and then like make a table. Right. Um, right. But, but I had to like imperatively add, like create a table first and then like add things one by one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is, um, this is one that, uh, we're, we're thinking a bunch about actually, um, right now and, and have some prototypes, um, uh, I mean, I think what you're what you're basically seeing is is like the the underlying some of the underlying building blocks that that we haven't created a, the right abstraction on top of to make it uh, a bit easier to do. Um, so I, I won't say exactly how we plan to do that, but um, keeping us uh, in suspense. It's, <laughs> it's something uh, it's something that we're, we're definitely um, uh, have some really concrete ideas on how to solve. But I, I agree, like. Um, you know, when we built PAX, uh, that's, I guess, um, for, for your listeners, like PAX is sort of what, what you're leveraging when you, when you use an integration and, and PAX are basically a way to like pull data in from the outside world and, um, push data out to the outside world. Um, and we've been talking about Slack and, and in this case, like Spotify. Um, so, you know, interestingly, um, PAX are basically like sort of have two parts like there's an authentication side of this which is like it makes it possible for you to not understand like OAuth 2 and and quickly auth into your Spotify account um, and then there's like a there's an execution side of this which is that Spotify pack comes with a set of formulas um, and a couple um, buttons that are driven using those formulas um, and 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 so um, we kind of launched uh, the the primitive parts um, but there, there are definitely rough edges, and 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 especially this edge of like I just want to sync sync a set of um, uh, data, and I want to be able to like declare that from a formula and have it kind of materialize um, is something that you can't can't do yet. But um, definitely thinking about it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I see. So right now you can kind of import data once, but but isn't the two way sync thing isn't. isn't well, really the the um. The, the, so like refresh actually works um, and one-way sync works in the sense that um, uh, I can like take, take a row, you know, let's say, um, mm-hmm. uh, a song uh, in t- Spotify. T- take an individual song. Yeah. And, and have that like stay up to date and like continuously refresh the metadata about that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I want to like kind of go the other way and like update the title of that song, if I was the, the. Um, artist um, not able not able to do pieces of that yet 
Um, but there are other examples like where where you can where you can do kind of um, uh, one-time updates. But but the thing I think we're thinking about is is how you do that continuously. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So um, I guess the, the last question I have for you, I feel like is. I'm not exactly sure how to ask it. Um, so here, I'll I'll, tr- I'll give it to you in two different ways, and you can take either or both. Sure. So I find that um, people, th- that, that vision you laid out of um, blowing the distinction between people who create software, people who use software, that's a, a fairly common vision for people who listen to this podcast. And I think some people come at it from uh, academia and other people come at it from like the world of startups. Yeah. Um, and so like, a, a lot of the questions I ask, you know, or, or a lot of things you talk about, you, you like even the formula bar, for example, um, you, you kind of like iterated on it from like a startup product design perspective and you came up with something that's pretty great and, and you, and you ship it. And, and, um, when, like on the other hand, in people, people in academia and academia think about problems from like a more fundamental perspective, like a less, less practical perspective, um. So I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit about the, the trade-offs and, and why you think that the, I guess the, the main question is, um, like, how are you so, like, why are you confident that this will scale? Like, the, the people in academia kind of have, like, you know, they move slower, but they kind of get their foundations right, and people in startups move quicker, but then the risk might be that you you kind of corner yourself into a box and, and, and you don't actually um, build something that can be as flexible as, as you want or as easy to use as you want. Mm. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think in in a lot of ways we have to we have to kind of um, uh, a little bit fight the like mentality that I think a lot of startups have, which is you know just just like rush something out the door or just um, uh, you know do exactly what the customer says. Um, in mm. this case, um, uh, I think what you see. You know, hope, hopefully, what comes through in the tool is that there's actually quite a lot of kind of deep thoughtfulness that have, have gone into a lot of these choices, um, and uh, and so I I don't I don't think that like we actually fall sort of squarely on on like one side of that dichotomy or the hmm. other necessarily. I think that um, you know we have uh, folks you know maybe I'll, I'll cite we have we have folks from um, uh, Brett Victor's lab, Michael Nagel, who, who's like in 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 this community and and sort of continuously pulling us um, into some of the the research um, and grounding us in that way. And I think like the early team that um, you know built a lot of the foundation of the product, um, you know Alex and Shashir and Matt and Hamanchu and Phil, like these these guys um, have have a, a very long history um, in in the space of like you know, um, programming file systems and everything else. And so, um, uh, it, it, it was sort of atypical in that sense. Like we, we had a long, longer runway to get the foundations, right. Um, we actually spent like, uh, a few years in stealth. Um, hmm. uh, and that was, you know, iterating both on the ideas behind Coda, um, and, and kind of with a small set of customers. So really trying to balance that dichotomy of like thoughtfulness um, uh, with the kind of practical. I remember um, um, hearing about Coda like raising money four years ago 
being like, oh, that, that sounds neat. And then like two or three years later being like, oh, okay, that, that probably never went anywhere. And then, and then a couple months ago being like, oh, <laughs> they're back. Glad we were able to pleasantly surprise you. Um, um, yeah, I think, you know, I guess the other thing I would say is uh, it probably comes back to like the rituals of a, of a team. Um, you know, if, if I like looked inside of a team and looked at their rituals, I could probably get some understanding of like, you know, where they, where they might fall in a dichotomy like this. So, you know, concretely a, a researcher may spend a week, um, uh, or a set of years, like thinking about the same, same problem. Um, um, and for us, um, one kind of like fun ritual that we get, uh, to, to kind of step out of like the you know, what can be a crazy day to day is, um, we do codathons or hackathons basically, um, every quarter or two. Um, and the idea is to like spend, spend two or three days, uh, and, and really get to like see the teams like crazy creativity, um, applied to like some really tough problems. And, um, and a lot of times like the work that comes out of this is, is either inspired by research or, you know, um, folks like, like Brett Victor or, um, uh, or like is very adjacent to it. Um, and the fun thing is that you, you get to see it materialize like really quickly, or at least like an instantiation of it really quickly. Um, so like, you know, to, to give you a few like concrete examples, like in the first hackathon several years ago, um, the team was like really inspired by Brett Victor's dynamic drawings. And so like they, they built a simple way to do geometric shapes like rectangles and circles in the formula language and then plot and draw those. Um, and then, you know, the obvious next step is to like bind those shapes um, uh, to actual data and a table. And like what you get is, is like a composition that's, that's sort of dynamic. Um, uh, and like at the time we, we like quickly applied that to, we were tracking all our bugs and, and Coda it was at the time it was called Krypton. Um, and so we wanted to, like, we created a, a little status chart, uh, that was basically like rectangles drawn, um, from accounts of bugs. Um, uh, like another example is when we built, we built actions, so, you know, um, we, we, we basically used actions and, and taking action is kind of like the basis behind what we talked about with, you know, buttons that take action and automations that take action um, in the world. Um, so I think like to kind of tie it back to your question, like we're, we're fortunate to have a, a big base of users that have like really practical and important problems to solve every day. Um, but at the same time, uh, we have like very concrete rituals to like step back and, and, and be creative and invent and, um, and, and make sure that we're, uh, you know, uh, applying the appropriate level of thoughtfulness to the, the problem space. Cool. Yeah. Sounds like, uh, getting some of the best of both worlds. Yeah, hopefully. So I guess that's a good note to transition to, um, my, my last kind of meta question, which is, uh, you alluded to that you're hiring, um, so you, you can talk a bit more about that and any other ways you um, want to uh, suggest people reach out or get involved or any other links or places to mention. Now's the time for that. Um, sure, sure, thanks. Uh, yeah, so I guess in terms of hiring, you know, we're always hiring uh, engineers. We're also hiring um, kind of on the go-to-market uh, side as well. Um, uh, and you can you can just go to of our, our 
the jobs link in the footer if you're interested there or um, feel free to like hit me up um, uh, uh, and then in terms of other places to get involved um, one one really interesting place actually is our, our community is like very active um, so community.coda.io um, you can kind of like see the range of things that people are building and showing off there. You can see kind of like the questions and um, our team makes a, a big effort to stay very involved with uh, the community. Um, and so that's that's another place. Um, you know, if, if you end up building something neat, submit it as a template, we, we usually work with people and uh, and really try to understand, you know, the problem that they're trying to solve and how we can get that out to more people. Um, uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely looking for people interested in this space. And I think, you know, we have a handful of people who are really steeped in, um, uh, probably what your audience, uh, uh, is, is doing and thinking. And, um, those, those people uh, are really important to us. So insofar as there are others that are interested and, um, want to contribute to a, to a sort of greater vision like this, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Cool. Well, thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. It's awesome.